0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Hey, welcome to tonight's conversation with Claire Louise Bennett. My name is Olse Lapagolan, and I work with a program here at the House of Literature. For those of you who have yet to read Bennett's last novel, Checkout 19, or Kasse in Bjørn-Alex Hedman's Norwegian translation, I think the critic in one of Norway's largest newspapers, Dagbradde, put it aptly, when she gave the novel five stars and called it the strangest book I've ever read. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that we're dealing with a unique literary voice. In Checkout 19, Bennett puts word to the magic and the thrill of reading and the companionship of great books. She shows us the power of imagination and the power of literature while simultaneously pushing the boundaries of what literature can be. And this makes it all sound very serious and grand, but she's also very, very funny. Uh, and the language is playful and innovative. Claire Louise Bennett has written short stories, essays, and two novels. Her debut, Pond, came out in 2013 to great critical acclaim. And Checkout 19 followed last year again to rave reviews. And we're so happy to have Bennett here tonight to bring us into this strange universe of our books. And we've asked Amalie Kasplin Lerstang to talk with Bennett tonight. She's the author of both prose and poetry, most recently the poetry collection Vosch, about her hometown. And as editor of the poetry anthology *En eller to, eller hundrevis av one or two or hundreds of sisters. So please give them both a warm welcome.
1: Thank you, Oslo, for the introduction. I'll put the book here and welcome Claire Louise to Oslo. I'm uh, extremely happy that we could have this conversation live. And too. not on Zoom or Teams or anything. And also that the audience can actually be present here today. So that's really nice. So we're going to talk today about your book, um, Check check Out 19, Kasse 19 in Norwegian. Mm-hmm. And um, the novel centers around uh, situations from when the narrator grew up until she becomes a young adult. And uh, books are always uh, involved in this situation somehow. Mm. Uh, but in preparation for our conversation, I felt that every time I try to sort of make a kind of summary of the book to maybe those in the audience who haven't read it yet, it feels as I'm working in the opposite direction of what your book is trying to do in a way. Uh, and maybe that is why we get those uh, quotes, as Ossil said. And also on the Norwegian uh, blurb, there's a quote from uh, Roddy Doyle who says that it's a beautiful novel and I don't know why, and that makes it even uh, better. <laughs> and I, I think that's uh, something that I see in the um, in the critique of your work, that people are kind of afraid to sort of uh, nail it uh, too tightly. And so I was wondering if you maybe could start To say something about how this book came into being
2: after you wrote *Pont*, who was an international success. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, I would like to thank Oslo for inviting me here um, to the Literature House. Uh, I've been to Oslo before, but I've never been here before, and I've I've just so enjoyed it. It's been so lovely and relaxing, and um, just the welcome was so really lovely, really. So that's been so nice. Um, and it's great to, to be here. As I just said to uh, Amelie before we came on, I said, who are all these people? <laughs> I always find it so funny when I go somewhere else and you, you, see, you think, oh, my God, <laughs> so strange but lovely. I'm so glad. I always say to my friend Mark, like, I bet there'll be five people there and three of them will be volunteers. (laughs) Nothing wrong with volunteers, but I don't think they take much notice of me half the time anyway. Um, so to talk about the, the book, well, it was a few years, um, between Pond and, and this one. Um, and there was a lot of difficulty during those five or six years, I suppose. It was about five years, maybe. Um, It was for many reasons, really. I mean, a second book, everyone tells you that second books are difficult. Um, And I felt that the uh, the reading landscape had had changed an awful lot. Um, In the meantime, a lot of, um, I suppose, activism and discourse had sort of come about in terms of uh, female experience. and um, So it was very hard to sort of know how to locate myself in amongst all of that and if I wanted to and everything became quite loaded I think um and it just wasn't a very good sort of space for me to to, to work in thinking about those things uh too much or being too conscious of them so um yeah I guess I guess funnily enough then it was uh, when COVID happened and everything started to you know quiet and down and there was restrictions, obviously, and lives became uh, much more um, uh, restricted and repetitive. Uh, which was great as a writer; you you kind of thrive on that a little bit, I think. <laughs> well, I'm mean, I'm ready now for a bit a bit of range, but <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of being able to really be clear about your own thoughts. It's, it's, for me anyway, it's important to have just a lot of um, time where the noise is turned down on the rest of the, of the world a bit, really. Um, and I, there, were, there were pieces that I had had for a long time um, that I knew I wanted to bring together, and I tried doing that in London maybe a couple of years before. I had the piece about the teacher... The piece about the Russian man the piece about the room with a view a room with a view and I knew I wanted to have them in proximity but I didn't I couldn't quite work out how to do it it was strange to me it was a bit frustrating because I knew that I had a sense that they belonged somehow together but I just really couldn't work it out and I thought was it to do with image is it to do with you know trying to kind of find ways and but then for whatever reason during that period of time I was able to unlock those connections and and get them working and that was really that was really exciting. How do you do that? How do you work with form? How do you get them to connect? I don't know. It's it is a bit of a magical thing in a way. It take, it just you have to spend a lot of time with the material. You know, and you have to like there's a certain sort of, I mean, there's there's a period where there's this just labour and uh, aggravation and frustration and you feel, you can feel really just bad and you and you might write a lot of stuff that's just really bad and you just think, oh, no, I, I don't know. What, I can't, I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> and it's really easy for me to to think that because I don't really write books in a, I don't really write very normal kind of books in the sense of, you know narrative structure and stuff like that so it's really easy for me to have very negative thoughts about what i'm doing and think that i just i just don't know what i'm doing i just think oh, you just don't actually understand what a book is so (laughs) you're just being like this this is no good really and then um so it's really hard to sort of over you know overcome all of that as well and then with time I guess like I I went to of course I went to the Munk museum today and I was looking at more at the surrealist um exhibition that is on there at the moment. I was a bit annoyed actually that there were so few female surrealist artists included. There are so many great ones, but anyway, they're not there so much. But the thing is it's, it is that thing that I it fascinates me is just those just those connections and and dream logic and Uh, Motifs that reoccur, and we don't even intend for them to happen, you know. And you start spotting kind of coincidences. If you've been working with material over a long, long time, and you have material from a long, long time ago, you begin to see things that resurface, and that's really interesting. And that becomes really, in a way, like the connective tissue. That's the structure. Are those echoes and those motifs? And you realise then, oh yeah, okay, that's how that's how I can put these things together yeah you know but because
1: although it's not a like a classical narrative there maybe um it still feels coherent to me the book like the thing um, phrases are being repeated maybe later in the book as well is that yes. how you
2: yeah I, I it was funny i thought it was like when i not long after i finished it and i read back through it again i was like oh that's that's kind of like pretty a uh, conventional novel i didn't that's weird <laughs> and i said it to my 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 friend's mum, and she hooted with laughter and she said louise no it's weird <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not like a normal novel and i was like, I was like oh, okay <laughs> but no if you think about it it really is because of the chronology and stuff she's like no don't forget don't worry about it darling it's not a normal novel so I was like, okay <laughs> um but yeah that's but it is important obviously for it to feel cohesive like, you don't want it to be a mess. I don't like mess. That would annoy me. And I've written, you know, things that have been a bit, I've just not been convinced that I've, I've worked on a deep enough level with it. Like, I, I reach a point where I do feel like a mechanic and I go in and I'm sort of tinkering on such a kind of like, like a, I don't know, like a micro level, like really finding that those, like, yeah, like that connective tissue. And I, I, love, I love that. But, and it takes, it takes a lot of time and going back through you know, working back through and I love it. I really love that, actually. It feels quite sculptural or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because you told me on the way down here that you didn't like um, the term stream of consciousness. Has that to do with that, maybe? Do you like it? Do you use it much?
2: (sighs) (laughs) In in lack of better
1: words, maybe? Well, that's exactly (laughs) it, isn't it?
2: I think it gets used because there are kind of an absence of of words maybe to describe work that isn't uh, so sort of orthodox. And as, as I was saying just now, you know, it, it, it's applied to so many different books. But then if you looked at all those books, they have nothing actually in common. <laughs> They're completely different. So you're wondering what it is that they de- it denotes. It just seems to really denote that this is not a, a regular book and... I mean, I was reading something from the TLS uh, that was from the f- 1950s. I think a reviewer had said, oh, I'm so sick of this phase, you know, through consciousness, it's been done to death. That was in, like, 1952. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, like, <laughs> 70 years later, we're still kind of, like, hammering it out, and I just don't know what it means. And I think I, think I suppose I'm, I get a bit sensitive about it because when it's said, I always think, well, what they really mean is that I've just gone, Bleh. You know? <laughs> and spilt a lot of crap all over the page that's really what people mean <laughs> stream of consciousness it's just like whatever crap is coming you know into my head and that annoys me because it's just like it's really not like that at all <laughs> but do you, do you experience that it's
1: often used about your work
2: uh, yeah I, I it seems to have a slightly negative connotation sometimes i think and and I think what it is is about, I don't find it particularly particularly with this book, because with this book, there are many, many uh, timescales at work at the same time. Like stream of consciousness is okay. So you could say it's like the mind in action or something. And it's just, yeah, all the impressions and everything that's going on and things. But there's such a collapse of, of, ti- of time in this. Not a collapse even, but a simul- simultaneity of time. That, in a sense, that doesn't really make, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me to think of it in, in that way. Um, and I would point to a, a, a writer like, well, someone like Jean Rhys or Marguerite Duras um, or Annie Arnaud, even, whose style is very, very different from mine, but in their treatment of time. And Deborah Levy, actually, she's another one, a more contemporary writer who who is able to f- like feel within the present, the past in it. Um, and I haven't expressed that very well, but it's kind of tricky. Yeah, there's different temporal registers,
1: I suppose. Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Because I think time is, an, is important in this book, I think.
2: So uh, navi-
1: navigating in time in this book. Like, um, uh, it's like uh, when she looks back on certain uh, events or... Um, it's like book is a way to sort of navigate in time and in space, in a way,
2: I feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm um well yeah and I guess there's a a very big section in the in the book that I uh hadn't really um anticipated it taking up so much time and space in the book (laughs) about what what she has read and what what she hasn't read yeah um and and then I just found that such a an interesting thing to sort of continue with and to stay with so even though actually originally well I thought of it I thought it was only going to be maybe a few sentences. I kind of liked it as a maybe a device of some sort, and I like and I liked the, the rhythm of it. And as they had, they had a particular rhythmic quality to it. So I kind of I stayed with it, and and it was interesting to think of how how a book that she hadn't hasn't read uh, at a particular time. And she subsequently reads, changes the changes how she sees a past event. Yeah, and yeah, because I mean, and and that idea, I suppose, of the past not being, not being fixed. And I suppose that, that was a a key thing for me that I had reached a point in in my life uh, as I was getting older when my life no longer seemed all of a piece. You know, for a long time it just sort of does, and even this your, your youthful stuff seems like it's there's a continue one but then there comes a point when it it really doesn't anymore it's quite strange quite a strange kind of moment that really and it's sort of melancholy obviously because there's a kind of a weird grief there in a strange way but it does enable you to sort of look at things with uh, a great deal of compassion i think um because it can't hurt you anymore in a way i don't mm. think um or you don't feel a product of it, then maybe is a better way of putting it. Uh, you have a certain freedom from it. Um, mm. Anyway, that's maybe a bit of a different subject, I don't know.
1: No, but that's interesting because um, um, also like thinking back what, she's, what she'd read and what she hadn't read at the time. Um, but like you said earlier as well, there's pieces that was written or sequences in the text that was actually written a long time ago. And there's, um, uh, there's a sequence where um, the narrator is um, a young adult and she's on the top of a hill looking o- down on a valley. Mm-hmm. And without maybe giving away too much, I don't know, uh, you can decide that, but uh, it's um, she discovers something awful. Mm-hmm. And then the text goes on to say that... Um, I've tried to write about it many times, but every time I try to write about it, it becomes uh, exaggerated. Mm. And it's like uh, she pushes herself to just come on, just tell what happened. Mm. And then the tone of the text sort of changes in a way. And I was curious to know like, more about that because um, it seems like it gets harder and harder to uh, say something uh, true about what really happened.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting part because some of those um sections um actually do come were written at completely different times uh and i think some of the shorter sections uh when she's describing being sitting on a on a log that's isn't it isn't in the grass is wet and she's wearing some daps or something and they're quite damp and there's a swing behind her and um those those parts some of those parts i i wrote over 20 years ago so i'm quite interested in um using pieces that are that are quite old or that aren't uh, contemporaneous necessarily because they have a different emotional charge because they were written near the time right mm. So they do They do have a different kind of vibe to them, really different frequency to them. So in writing that piece, I didn't think, well, I'm just going to write up those notes. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't really think of them as notes. I was like, well, no, I'm going to... It's like a collage in a way. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the style is slightly... It's interesting that you could pick up on that, really, because you kind of wonder whether people will. But that's something that happens throughout throughout the book because, like, I yeah... There are many versions I might have written about something, you know, many times over the years. And there is that frustration because in a way you want it to have that original impact that you that you experienced when it happened. You want to somehow try and recreate that. But then that can lead to some really bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, no, this is so bad.
1: It, you yeah, know, yeah, so you yeah.
2: think, well, maybe maybe that's not it then. Maybe that's not what needs to happen here. You're not going to make a person kind of go, oh, like, <laughs> you know, there has, there's another, there's a more important or interesting or uh, function for this, and it's discovering that in a way as well. And I suppose ultimately it does become about about memory, really. Mm. You know.
1: But when you when you you said it was written 20 years ago, did you then do you edit it a lot before you? Put
2: it back into the novel? No, or? no, that's no. no, that's what I'm saying. No, you, yeah. and it's hard because you know you kind of feel like you want to do like, and you just think, well, no, don't do that. You yeah, know, you're either going to take it intact, and there's a reason for doing that. And like I said, it's to do with the energy of it. Mm. You know, which is different because of the, how close in time it was to the to the event itself. Um. So no, I don't. I don't. I don't interfere with it. Really.
1: Well, yeah. it's just the uh, yeah. It's so hard not to edit it to death, really.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <Isn't> yeah. <it? laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, another one of those um, uh, earlier written stories that uh, end up in this novel is uh, the story about Tarkin. I was actually wondering how it was to. Uh, how do I say his last name? Well, I say uh, Superbus. Superbus. But somebody yeah. said Superbus. Y- yeah. I which was, is quite nice. <laughs> I didn't quite want like to say that. Superbus. It was Superbus. Superbus is good. Okay, so Superbus then. <laughs> And in the in the novel, the narrator starts talking about how she once wrote a story about someone named Tarkin Superbus, and then we just gradually sort of get the story about Tarkin Superbus. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly, this is the novel about uh, Tarkin mm-hmm. Superbus. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did he end up in the novel? Because it's um, it's quite. Uh, a change like uh, Tarkin Superbus is, or you can tell a little bit about it, maybe. I don't know. What it's what so it was so funny. It was so funny. It
2: happened because I was really enjoying it. It was so funny because again, it was a thing where I thought, "Oh, I'm going to write about that." Um, and again, I thought it was only going to be maybe a, a, a short kind of passage about about the story that I'd written, um, like a, yeah, about 20, I suppose more, yeah, twenty odd years ago. Um, and I, I, didn't, I didn't finish it. It was very short. Um, and I never make up characters. That was the weird thing about it. I don't really. So, this was a character in your Talking know, Superbus. But I was really vague about <laughs> w- really kind of like where he lived and when, and all these sorts of details then. And maybe this is one of the reasons why I get kind of scared about the idea of writing a conventional novel because I think I bet I get something wrong. <laughs> and the reviewer would be like oh well she's clearly never been to you know <laughs> and i'll be like oh for god's sake so <laughs> you don't name anything like in part, there's no names or anything like that so they just have to get their knickers and twist about something else um, but and i see they, him
1: as this very flamboyant sort he of is, 1800s yeah of he's like
2: sometimes he was from the 1800s and i write and sometimes he was like from more like the renaissance period and the way he spoke was all over the place. You know, there was no real, like, continuity, really. And if I just fancied the idea of him having some sort of bauble or pastime or affectation, I just put it in. And I just didn't really care about anachronisms and stuff. It was like loads of fun. And um, so I got really into, re- you know, writing about this story that I once wrote. And and, and then it was quite um, an interesting experience because... And I guess uh, this is maybe an experience that novel writers have. You know, they talk about characters coming alive. Um, and, he, and he sort of did, in a way. <laughs> he did go through a really bad phase where I just kept seeing him as Boris Johnson, which was a slight old pause. <laughs> <laughs> Like, sulking. <laughs> like, in a chair, like, looking really like, oh, someone's taken away my beer. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of what if... He felt like for a while but then he changed and he became and it was so and i in, and i enjoyed that because then there was another character it was the doctor and he goes through a real transformation as i'm writing it because he starts off as quite sort of a vague-ish character he's very ghostly really really pale he's got a really white face and she she describes him as such and says maybe he's like 300 years old or Maybe he's death, actually, because of the way he moves. He's so spectral, and he just sort of appears and disappears. And But then as it goes on, he actually becomes more and more real. And that is a metaphor, you know, it's a very obvious metaphor for how then, uh, I guess, a character be, starts to become more and more um, real and sub- substantial in your own imagination. So then by the end of it, actually, it's like... She has a bit of a crush on him. She's like, oh, he's brilliant. He's got a nice suit on and da-da-da. He smells nice. <laughs> he smells of Indian soap or something. So he's gone from this kind of, like, Nosratu character <laughs> to being, like, your man from The Great Beauty, you know, the film, that Italian guy. He's quite nice. <laughs> so this has been this transformation. And that's so fascinating, you know. And I was interested in that. It was interesting. So then instead of going, right, I'm going to go back to the beginning and have him like this from the start so there is a, a consistency... I'm going, to leave, I'm going to leave it in so that the reader can just actually see how he changes. Mm. And then at the end, when he goes in to say goodnight to the housekeeper, she looks at him and she, she's like me, she's, she's speaking for me because she says, I'd never really noticed how nice his eyes were before. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and she says, good night, doctor. Uh, uh, something. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I just like it. <laughs> I just like how his whole thing is. And I leave him be then, and he goes off into the night, and <laughs> I say something like, "Do, doctor, I could have listened to you all night long or something. <laughs> it's really playful. I love that chapter, actually. I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun with Yeah.
1: But to me, <laughs> to me, Tarkin became sort of, even more important, when we later learn that um, uh, the notebook that she first wrote about him in um, uh, the notebook with the original story about Tarkin, she finds it uh, shredded to pieces on the floor by her then boyfriend. Yeah, which is, of course, we know we have we everyone agree that that's a horrible thing to do to someone to shred up their notebook, and it's like because um, he feels sort of threatened about. Her writing—it's something that he can't really understand and can't be part of, and Mm. therefore he Mm. just shreds it to pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, it was—it became sort of like a revenge in a way. Like, okay, you could tore up the book, but you couldn't Mm -hmm. really—you couldn't kill the the idea about Mm -hmm. Tarkin Superbus Mm because here he is alive, (laughs) kicking. Mm So, um, so yeah, what's your thought on that like
2: well there was quite there's quite a heavy-handed sort of uh, connection that is made isn't there between say that and and there's a mention of like the, the book burning uh in the same chapter mm. so i kind of you know it's a bit heavy-handed i suppose but it just you know i just thought of it and there is a fire uh in the in the tarp- so actually tarpon he acquires this um this library and this was actually this was in the original piece this is what really what the story was about So he's a bit fed up with people not taking him seriously. I think he pretty much lives in Venice. For ages it was like, is it Vienna or is it Venice? Mm, Not much in it, I guess, but let's settle on one, probably Venice. (laughs) And everyone thinks he's a bit of a buffoon, you know, and he just sponsors money and people laugh at him and he thinks, right, I'm going to get a library now. going to get a really cool library, loads of books and everyone's going to just take me seriously because everyone knows that if you've got books... You know, you're pretty serious, right? <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get me some books. So he, do, so he does this, and then the whole thing about the books is, so they don't know, there's quite a mysterious uh, procession of carriages kind of come in. They come flying in, in these, on these carts in crates, and um, it's quite mysterious where they originated from. And the, and the sense is that it's just this library that has been kind of travelling around for hundreds maybe you know longer years and they, they it contains lots of uh, tracts and manifestos and tomes from from all different kinds of cultures and civilizations so anyway he has this installed in this very elaborate kind of almost like a honeycomb sort of room with no you know, windows no windows and stuff and it gets described in things and it's all very opulent and stuff like that so anyway the books get shoved in and like he doesn't really take any notice of them at all and the Doctor comes around, uh, and he's in a bit of a funk again. And his Doctor is, is the, his only friend, really. He's known him since he was a boy. And the Doctor comes <laughs> around, and he says, oh, what's the matter with you? And he says, oh, you know, whatever. But look, I'm, I've got this library. Let's come out. I want to show you my books. I've got these amazing books. The Doctor says, oh, right, wonderful. Because, of course, Doctor's very erudite, and not just for <laughs> show. So he goes into this library, and Tarkin watches him. He's drinking a glass of Barolo, and he's watching the Doctor. And the Doctor's kind of flicking through the books, and... Talking's like, oh yeah, look, he's having a really good time looking through stuff. Mm-hmm. Looking good, looking, and he takes another one and looks through, and he keeps looking through, and then Tarkin's like, what's he doing? Like, He's not really, you know, spending any time on any one of these books. And then the doctor looks at him and he says, there isn't a single word on any of the pages of your books. They're blank. Completely blank. So there's this whole vast library, and there's nothing, and he's like... Oh yeah, I've been taken for a chump again. Really pissed <laughs> off again, right? And then the doctor says, "No, no, no, no. This is this is this is very important now." He says because this library is very, very special, and like I just described, this library has been travelling around, and it kind of ends up in different uh, eminent households throughout Europe, mainly, I think. Um, and there's there's probably you know there's a reason, and within this library okay, they're all blank pages, but actually there is, there is somewhere a sentence printed somewhere. It's very kind of Borges, you know, idea, I suppose. Um, but there is this, yeah, one, one sentence somewhere. And you, and when you find it, you have this kind of this experience of understanding and enlightenment. So Tarquin's a bit like, oh, for God's sake, that's just way too much hard work. Like, <laughs> what do you, you know, what do you mean? I have to look, so I have to look through all these. And he says, well, that's the challenge you know but if you do find it do you just experience this insane awakening kind of thing so tarquin starts having a look doesn't he he kind of shoves <laughs> up against the bookshelves the next day and he doesn't he's like oh yeah i'll get this done by lunchtime no problem and then he gets kind of fed up and he doesn't find it and he has a huge tantrum and he just decides to to burn the whole lot of it um so there's a a pretty yeah a pretty full-on scene where there's a a huge, huge fire, and then I suppose because I'd created this scene and there was this image of book burning, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but, uh, you know, link it to uh, the book burnings in, in Berlin. Um, so I did, I did. Yeah, yeah. And that was, I mean, that was something I did throughout. Any, if I thought of something, if I thought, of, if something occurred to me, I pretty much put it in. Like there was nothing really that I, I, um, or very few things. That I thought, well, you know, does it fit, or you know, is it a distraction? I mean, a couple of very, very small things. I think I wrote quite a long bit about Ingeborg Bachmann, and it just was too much. I took that out, <laughs> which I kind of regret regretted. But anyway, <laughs> she'll she'll have her a moment. But mostly, I mean, and that was almost like a principle for me throughout the whole thing of like, put it in if you if you if you think it or if you feel it, just put it in. Don't don't censor yourself or so that's what i did yeah Mm. maybe you want
1: to um read a little for us from from the book okay okay,
2: well i'm just trying to think what um oh yeah i might be this bit then because for all that i mean there is there is a lot in it to do with you know family um and in childhood and a writer uh, who I who I really adore, and I discovered her work about um, ten years ago, was an Italian writer called Natalia Ginsburg. Um, she's a wonderful writer, or, or was, um, and she would have been writing, I guess, post-war in Italy. Um, so, in a way, that kind of what would you call it, Italian neo neo realist, I suppose. Um, and would have known a lot of the filmmakers around that time as well who were kind of making uh, like the bicycle thief and stuff and I think she would have known some of those guys um, so I really love I really love the strength of her writing and the strength of how she locates it in direct experience and the way she um, the way she uses language, the way her relationship towards language uh, developed and and from there's one of her books called family sayings or family lexicon which i really really loved because as much as this novel is about books it's also about spoken language and about how it's shared at home when we're children and phrases that you that you have and that will always connect you uh to your to your family and to a certain time in your life um they're very important to me um I I loved that, and it's still very much a part of uh, the way I think about language, even in a a written sense, as much as, you know, thinking of it in in a literary, intellectual sort of way. So, I'll read this bit then. I have this idea that Marilyn Monroe stayed in bed when she got her period and bled all over the sheets, and I'm not sure where I derived it from. It's been in my head since I was approximately 10 years old. My grandmother adored old Hollywood stars and had a particular penchant for Vivian Lee and Marilyn Monroe. So it might have been from her I got it. But I can't imagine my grandmother telling me a thing like that. Perhaps she said it to my aunt and I overheard. I wasn't a snoop, but I did have sharp ears. Mm-hmm. My family relished exchanging grisly tales, though usually I'd only ever catch a snippet, which, severed from the full body of the story became disturbingly visceral and took on a lasting and malignant life all of its own. I shall never forget the heinous image that assaulted my imagination when I overheard, for example, my other grandmother saying to her son, my father, and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers. Imagine that, eating your own hands. (laughs) Stupidly, I repeated those words to myself verbatim many times over. My tendency to take every word I heard absolutely literally, paradoxically meant I very often got the wrong end of the stick about quite a lot of things on a daily basis. And surely I had got the wrong end of the stick about this conversation. Surely the girl, whoever she was, hadn't really eaten her own hands. It occurred to me that I probably hadn't understood what my grandmother had said correctly, that her words meant something else, something entirely innocuous. However, instead of just brushing them off, it came to me that perhaps if I only repeated the awful phrase enough, the real innocuous meaning that it obviously contained would eventually surface in all of its forgettable ordinariness, and the gory apparition of the girl greedily gobbling up her own hands (laughs) and all the blood crawling down her arms and dripping thickly from her elbows would go away at once. That's not what happened. On the contrary... A new terror was released upon me, ironically by the most humdrum word out of them all. After many repetitions, the word and lodged in my throat, expanded barbarously. I practically choked on it and, and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers. So in fact, there was another thing she did before chewing off her hands, possibly something much worse. Would my grandmother say the worst thing first? Probably she would. My father's mother was dramatic and liked to make maximum impact when she told you a story, whereas my mother's mother recounted scandalous news in a roundabout sort of way, pulled back and forth again and again by uncertainty and a preoccupation with peripheral details, apparent shortcomings, oh, come on, spit it out, which often, nonetheless, conspired to plant a strange and robust seed. What exactly had the girl done before she chewed off the skin on her fingers? (laughs) On this occasion, my imagination was uncommonly uncommonly considerate of my faint-hearted disposition, so that instead of conjuring up the absolute worst, it very quickly installed a relatively tame image of the girl tearing out her blonde and lank hair, thus preventing anything truly horrific from emerging that would scare the living daylights out of me. Tearing out her hair seemed to make sense anyway. She'd torn out her hair in great big clumps and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers. Imagine that, eating your own hands. Yes, that made sense. (laughs) Clearly, it was the eating of the hands that my grandmother wanted to leave my father with. So, in all likelihood, the prior diabolical action very probably wasn't anything worse than that. And in fact, now that the hand-eating was prefixed by another grim act of self-mutilation, it wasn't nearly as frightening anymore. In fact, it made me laugh. (laughs) Thank
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in Glimpses, we, we see a, a young girl growing up. And I, um, there's a scene in the, uh, when she's, she's at school and she um, starts um, drawing a face in the back of her book. And then she starts scribbling over it and then suddenly turns into some words and she writes a story, maybe Mm -hmm. her first story. And and that seems kind of important. It's like, um, I think um, it says um, in the book, and then the pen was done, spent, happy and lay there now, smoldering on top of the closed exercise book. Spent, yes, but I knew now what it was capable of. So we sort of see her... Um, way towards um, writing herself. Um, And there's also a teacher there who discovers her um, story in the back of the book and he asks her to read uh, more. And I was thinking um, about how some writers always say that um, they knew from the beginning that they would become a writer or they knew early on that they would um, uh, pursue writing um, but here I find it as more of a, a fragile thing, maybe, that it's very important to have those, um, almost uh, by coincidence, she finds mm. the text, but to her it means a lot. And could you say something about that? Like, um, her, she doesn't grow up with uh, lots of books. She has a few books. And because she's got few books, they also uh, mean a lot. Like, they stand out. Um so how how is uh, how is her way into
2: writing really well i guess an element of it that is quite important uh, is is the class element and the background that she comes from which is working class um so no she there isn't a whole lot of books and there isn't really this idea um that she she might be a writer when she she grows up i mean that's just not something at all that would be um would occur to her um but you know based upon the world around her and and the opportunities um or the you know the very narrow set of opportunities that are um part of her, her future I suppose as a working class a young working class um girl um so there's a lot more at stake than just becoming a you know a writer and getting good at writing and all the rest of it it's a It's a huge existential shift as much as anything else um and thinking and that was something else i i kind of had been thinking about and hadn't really thought about particularly um i live in i live in Ireland and i'm originally from the from the u k um and I was born in a very working class town and it was uh, at the time it was the fastest growing town in in europe and and there were a lot of a lot of jobs which was kind of irritating because i didn't i didn't (laughs) want a job (laughs) um but you know you had to and they were awful really really but and i did a lot of jobs for quite a while you know in warehouses and and things and I'd, i'd had a third level education i'd been to university um, there's this sort of you know naive idea that if I got a degree, it would somehow lead to something, but you know it doesn't really. It's because you need the, you need the social networks, and so on. It's not enough really just to have this this degree. Like no one cares. They don't know who you are. Uh, so I just went, ended up back in my in my hometown, and it was really as if I hadn't done the degree. Um, I, I, it was the same except I you know owed money. Brilliant. Um, so. <laughs> For various reasons, I was like, "Well, maybe I'll leave the country <laughs> um, so I did you know, so I did, so there was all kinds of factors involved in this thing about you know becoming becoming you know a writer um I mean yeah, people do you know do ask i suppose, when did you start writing and and when did you know and all this kind of thing and it's it it never really it never really feel you know it never feels like like it it's like that really that's not on the level I experience it on um and when I started I suppose when I realized I'd lived in Ireland for about 20 years I started to kind of think about you know why why I was there and why I'd left England because I hadn't really thought about it that much um and I suppose more and more people were kind of asking me what what had gone on there and and I just said well actually I, I I just didn't see that I had much of a future in in England actually or the future I had just seemed very, very sort of quite bleak and uh, limited. So that was... Um Why? Well, because like I said, I just, you know, there was such a kind of a, a focus on, you know, just getting a job and getting, a, you know, a house in one of those suburbs out near Freshbrook or whatever it was called. And, there, you know, and there was all these big, like um, nine screen cinemas being built out in the outskirts of town and big, I don't know. DIY shops and stuff, and I just thought I don't. I just don't want to live like that, you know. I'll go crazy. I'll go really, really crazy. And it's hard then because you don't. You know, you don't want want your parents to think that you're judging them and saying to them the way you've chosen to live your life is kind of rubbish. I'm not saying that. It just, I know. I know what I can't do. You know what I mean? So Mm. there was a lot of pain around that. Actually, there was quite a bit of pain around around that, and um, you do feel. And it's something that Annie Elno talks about in her books. I don't know whether I'm sure she's, I'm very sure she's been translated into Norwegian. She's an amazing French writer. She's about 80 now. And she grew up uh, with, her parents were um, they ran a cafe shop, you know, one of these épicerie cafés in in Rouen in France. Um, and they were just very, very regular people. And she was, she was smart and she went to college, went to university, she became a teacher and and she talks about, this incredible scene, it's beautiful scene, it's so heart-wrenching and I really identified with it. And she talked about when she came back from university and, you know, you have to sit around the table and the neighbours are there and they're talking about, you know, yeah, a new supermarket that's opened up, actually, funnily enough, and who does the best uh, jugged uh, hare or rabbit and all this kind of thing. And she's got a head full of Virginia Woolf and... And she really, and she and she gets irritated because she really she doesn't want to be hanging around sitting listening to this. She wants to be upstairs reading her books, you know. But you got to get, you got to negotiate it. You can't be, you know. You have got to do your bit and take part. Um, and you, and but at the same time, because your mind is somewhere else c- completely and thinking on a not a different, what well, is a different level, really, I suppose. But it's it's thinking in a different way, and you become more and more interior. You know, because mm. you're not in an environment where you can just be yourself and and say what is going on and talk about. I mean, I I really couldn't, and mm. even you know, even now, I you know, my parents don't really know what they don't they don't really know I'm here or, you know, I mean, it's different now because I'm older in a way. But when you're younger, but even <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit it, it limits it limits their sense of you and it limits what you what you share and all those kinds of things. So, you know, this idea of being a, being a writer, like. I guess there'll always be an element of doubt if, if a huge part of the people in my life don't experience that part of me. You know what I mean? I think it will always... And so Annie, Elno, she always talks about this conflict in her and it never gets resolved. And now she's 80 and she still talks about it. And sometimes she even describes herself as a class defector. Like she feels it so strongly. And when she writes, she, she's, not, she's not like me with all this crazy kind of language. She keeps it very, very simple and very, very plain. And I don't know whether that's her way of dealing with this guilt because she says, oh, I want my books uh, to be, uh, you know, people from ordinary backgrounds to be able to read my books. And I felt kind of a bit bad for a while. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I almost create difficult, you know, what's that about? Am I being passive-aggressive or something? <laughs> like, do you know, um, <laughs> But I I just, I thought, well, no, actually, when I was, you know, I've always really enjoyed, you know, you can't second guess your reader. You can't say what what an ordinary, a working class person is an ordinary person because they're not particularly. And it doesn't mean that they can't enjoy language and they can't access, you know, more experimentally put together language. Mm. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I I wanted to uh, get the time to talk a bit about Anne Quinn that Mm -hmm. you write about Mm. in your uh, novel. I'm not sure if everyone here knows who she is so maybe you could say a little bit about her and mm. especially what you write about how she was perceived by critics uh, that was from a, um, a more upper-class background than her uh, herself being mm. a female writer
2: from the working class right can you say something yeah about I, that? yeah absolutely it's a good time actually to mention her uh so yeah she she was another writer i only discovered in in recent years and she was from uh, brighton in in england um she was brought up by her mother only i don't know what her father was up to he i think he might have been involved in vaudeville or something but he was kind of there and gone mostly gone i think um i can't remember exactly when she was born maybe the 30s yeah maybe 30s 40s that would be about right and she's got a really extraordinary way of of writing a very unique kind of style which feels to me very, very authentic. It's uh, it's very based on sort of like I guess form, texture, um, her focus on things. She's not really looking at you know um, your story in the conventional sense. It's quite hard to describe. But actually, the critics, the way they they pigeonholed her was to lump her in with the writers of the Nouveau Roman from from Paris at the time, writers like Hélène uh, Griez, I suppose, that kind of thing. And they were, yeah, sure, looking at uh, the world in this sort of, um, I guess, post-existentialist way, where you're, they're focusing very much on, you know, the, the objects and qualities of the material world. So they're kind of saying, oh, yeah, she's just, tr- she's imitating. I mean, they basically said that. The reviews are really sniffy Um but then I was thinking about it and I just thought, well, I know this this is authentic. And where this is coming from? And they've got a blind spot here. Is this is like because of their class position, right? They're not they're saying here they're not getting. And the thing is, if you if you grow up in a working class environment, there's this really weird thing that happens. On the one hand, there's loads of stuff going on all the time, right? It's a racket. There's noise, there's stuff, and it's really hard to get your own space and da 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 but at the same time so you've got all this stimulation going on right at the same time it's not stimulating right so it's all this stuff but but also you're bored like there's nothing really you can connect with so it's a really strange thing so you are actually really conscious of things in quite a detached way because you become quite detached in a sense otherwise you'd just be exhausted um, so you're viewing it. So it's it, it's it's a perspective that actually is quite natural, and it does develop over over time, and and it creates a sensitivity of what well, you know. This term phenomenological. You you develop a phenomenological sensitivity, I think, quite quite naturally. And that was that's the point I make when I discuss her, her work. Um, and it feels completely, it feels completely authentic to me that she would be tuning into the world on, on that level. And it's extraordinary, the way she writes. And it doesn't mean... So it's kind of weird because you think, oh, does that mean she's like a realist writer? No, not really. Because, because one of the things about phenomenology is like, it's like trying to come at something without relying on um, received ideas about it and given formulas and, uh, you know, phrases that would be kind of cliches, I suppose. And you really feel that with her, that she's trying to absolutely just come at an experience or a situation a bit like Sasa did in, in *Nausea*. I suppose, yeah. I mean, there is a a tradition there, if you like. But I mean, every writer has that, don't they? You're not writing kind of like in a vacuum. But do you think that applies to your um, way of writing as well? Oh yeah, I mean, I I'm I am conscious not when I'm writing, but I am conscious. I mean, I love to read as as you can tell from this book, and I love to think about. Um, I suppose different ways of using language, and I suppose that is part of my frustra- frustration with the phrase "stream of consciousness," because in fact there are any number of ways of thinking about a, a writer's relationship with language if they're not just using it as a vehicle to tell a story. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it's like Francis Bacon has this said something like, "I don't want the uh, I don't want the story to, to, to shout louder than the pain." You know, it's the same with me. I don't want the story to. I want the words to still be apparent. I want people to p- feel that there are words on the page, mm. and to always rem- remember that there. It's like, yeah. And I and I'm interested in, in writers who um, who explore that dynamic as well. Um, and there are any number of ways. I just recently started reading the um, the uh, Russian um, philosopher Mikhail Bak- Bakhtin. Bakhtin i suppose it's not french is he backtans more um and he talks about like the you know the dialogic imagination and heteroglossia and all these great phrases and i think oh they're exciting they're more exciting than the stream of consciousness or so they seem to resonate more with me when i think about what i'm doing with language you know so there are other ways of and i think i think because we focus i don't know what it's like here but in the in the uk um Certainly, and to, in Ireland to a certain degree, but there's more of a, uh, a, a tradition there, I suppose, with Joyce and Beckett of play, language play. But in in they're still fairly conservative, I find, in the in the UK. Mm. You know, they get cold feet a bit if you do something a bit, a bit like, ooh, we like it, but ooh, a bit we're not like sure if anybody else will. You know what I <laughs> you mean? You're like, oh, for God's sake!
1: <laughs> You're kind of the opposite, I think. <laughs> Um our time is up. I could have listened to you for many hours. <laughs> is it really? I know I really chatty actually. <laughs> <Sorry>. But um,
2: <laughs>
1: but we have to finish. So Claire Louise, thank you so much for coming here, um <laughs> talking
2: to us. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> it's been really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>